Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast. I'm so excited to share this episode with you. I think it's one of the most inspiring and interesting stories that I've been able to record on the podcast to date. John B. Weller and Cassandra Brooks are a married couple based in Boulder, Colorado. Let me introduce you to each of them individually first. So Cassandra Brooks is an incoming assistant professor in environmental studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. She's worked in marine science and public outreach for 20 years, with the last 13 years largely centred on the remote reaches of Antarctica. She recently completed her PhD at Stanford University studying international ocean policy with a focus on marine protection in the Antarctic. During her previous graduate work at Moss Landing Marine Labs, she studied Antarctic toothfish in the Ross Sea, a population that supports the most remote fishery on Earth. Cassandra was also formally trained as a science communicator through the University of California, Santa Cruz, and has published more than 150 articles and multimedia stories about marine science and the environment. She has also worked with international non-profits to produce media promoting policy designed to protect ecologically important regions of the globe, while writing policy reports to identify important areas for marine protection in the Antarctic and elsewhere. She currently contributes to National Geographic's Ocean Views blog, while working as a science advisor for international conservation organisations. So as you can see, while the people that we have on this podcast are normally... UK or world specialists in one area, Cassandra is a specialist in at least three major areas, fish biology, international marine policy, and science and conservation communications as well. Now on to John. John Weller is a partner with organisations that fight for marine protections around the world. After graduating from Stanford in economics, he achieved critical acclaim as a writer and photographer. He's an impassioned observer of nature and followed a path through the Colorado desert to the waters of the Antarctic and has been working on Ross Sea Conservation as a SeaWeb Fellow since 2005. After four trips to the Ross Sea, including three months of diving under the ice as a guest of the United States Antarctic Programme, John compiled a library of Ross Sea photographs that has been published in dozens of magazines used by conservation organisations to publicise the Ross Sea all over the world, and showcased at the 2009, 2011 and 2013 Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meetings. He produced many short films, has an upcoming book, and has worked closely with scientists, policy makers and conservation organisations invested in the Ross Sea. John co-founded the Last Ocean Project to campaign for the protection of the Ross Sea, which Cassandra also became involved in. In our conversation, they describe the incredible story of their campaigning work over many years to seek strong protection for one of the remotest and most pristine marine habitats on Earth. We cover learning to deep-sea dive, why toothfish are some of the most interesting marine creatures in the world, how to prepare equipment for an Antarctic trip, John's underwater discovery about how Waddell seals stun their prey, and how you get 24 nations and the European Union, including China, Russia and the US, into a room to negotiate together. And of course we find out whether they were successful 
in getting global protection for this incredible place. This is one of the longer, maybe the longest, conversation that I've recorded for the podcast so far, but it's rich in detailed descriptions of the Antarctic landscape, tips on photographing in extreme environments, an analysis and background on how to run an international nature conservation campaign. Let's dive in.
It's actually always hard um, to come up with a list of mental Um, in the policy world now, and it's life. And I Which is 
Matt, one, one more thing I wanted to add, uh, you know, this, when I'm think, sitting here thinking about me. Go next. Uh, go. 
that I ate that I had. I went and saw just his cock and he bugged. And this was in 2004. And that that brought me on a 12 year journey. Building expertise and subject matter, finding new contacts. My phone, thinking, okay, who's the next person I need to call for this piece of this huge puzzle I'm trying to assemble? And a videographer I ended up working with me. Still needed to tell the underwater story, and, and that was. And then find passage down to McMurdo to go and, and photograph. No doubt, I this underwater story because it's half of the story of the Ross Sea. So uh, I started that kind of immediately in very early. Started uh, assembling, uh, buying equipment. You know, I was finding funding to buy equipment and. And then eventually, <coughs> I eventually moved my work into uh,
not. And, and I'll tell you a funny story about uh, yeah. So I went through this incredible preparation. to get down to Antarctica. So what John was able to accomplish, I can't tell you how many people, including Antarctic scientists and colleagues, go, wait, how did you get under the ice? Or You know, from the time I was very young, I had a deep passion for for fish, and particularly. Then, um, you know, every time I meet someone, I tell them I do marine science. They're like, "You study dolphins, right?" And I'd be like, "No, I study toothfish, which are you." And I literally fell into a project. And I have to say that I grew up in small town New England. Antarctica was sort of like first initial crazy awe-inspiring moment. And for me, it was when we were on this vessel, we left from Punta Arenas, South America. 
and we left from Prince of South America and crossed the Drake Passage, which is the most dangerous, treacherous sea in the world. So far away in these treacherous oceans, it really brought home for me how that operates. The topic of my um, master's thesis was the sea fish in the Ross Sea, um, the Antarctic sea fish that crossed this Mossinac. John, I think it's on your website that shows the fishery, the seas that were in the Along the way, after I read this paper by by David Ainley, and something that I mean, global issue, it's a food security issue, it's a human issue, and we have to see it that way. Uh, and aside from that, I mean, we're looking at uh, massive pollution, plastic pollution, uh, uh, coastal runoff, we have uh, uh, big dead zones in India.
have uh, each of this is 500 mile wide field of floating ice, so they've been pretty well. One of the last 15 places, the last place where we haven't intended. In New England, huge that, that that you know you could walk across the bodies of fish. There were so many of them, and then um, after. commercial fishing vessels going out into it. Name is Port Slate Walk. Fishing vessels. But what was so striking to me at that time was I'd go out on these vessels, we'd catch, they would be targeting cod, and they would be pulling up cod that were these tiny, tiny fish that were maybe, you know, a foot or two big. And yet these fish are... That we historically fish real that were fish, and some of them were overfed. But the areas that were closest to the continent, the high latitude areas, So big every summer that you can actually see it from outer space, and so it actually has disproportionately more life than most of the other parts of Antarctica. And I know they.
90% of the Southern Ocean, and yet it has Yeah, well, I think I think Cassandra just just kind of covered it. Um, <laughs> That's like an ice pump, a sea ice pump, pumping sea ice out into the ocean. And uh, so it's, it's really it's kind of the last vestige of, of uh, the Antarctic and, and of a kind of primal ocean. Required the uh, collaboration, uh, unanimous collaboration of all of those nations and. and uh, challenge the protection of the ocean is something that badly needs to see everywhere. And the Ross Sea was a real keystone, I believe, for what we hope will be a sea change in the way that we manage our ocean. Yes, yes, I really want to come on to that, um, the political um, kind of side of this sort of You've taken um, either of you that, um, that sums up why the Rossi is important not just for everyone, but I suppose particularly to, to each of you. I'm going to ask John to tell his real story. He's on the water. Oh, man. Let's see. So, what, what, let me, you know, let me start off. That's a, that question can be answered a number of ways. Uh, let me start yeah. off by saying that uh, the real experience that taught me the importance of the Rossi and the importance of protecting the Ross Sea was the birth of my daughter and in 2014. And I can honestly say I've been working, I've dedicated my life almost over a decade at that point to the protection.
the water. You have to imagine this incredible backdrop of this volcano behind this frozen bay. An island that popped out of the ice uh, called Tristan. The ice is about 12, uh, 14 feet thick. And, but it's still in motion and it's getting pushed up against the side of uh, and crushed into the side of this island. They have four holes open the season I was diving. So we're diving the same place over and over again. And I knew about these ice caves, but I had kind of... I was diving solo, and I, it was kind of near the end of the season. Uh, and I knew that I didn't have very many chances left to go and explore these ice caves. By that time, Deeper and deeper, this, this uh, got darker and darker and darker because all of this crumpled ice up above me was, was uh, uh, blocking out the light. By the time I got down to that shelf at 40 feet, it was you know, pitch black, and I came around. One of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And pictures, and then I entered the cave and was looking for the. Benthic community on this pile of rocks.
whole bunch of different different uh, 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 creatures on this on this rock, uh, this little set of rocks, and uh, I, I, it's just one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. There's a crack in the ceiling that, from the right angle, looks like there's a blue plume of smoke coming up from the pile of rocks. Compose a photograph and uh, getting deep into this. And I was wearing a tripod on my chest, which I had to put down. And it was on, on the camera. I was starting to detail very tiny knobs until I got into my work and uh, wasn't. I uh, basically took this like a This thing hit me. I was in a cave by myself, two chambers in, under the ice in Antarctica. And I thought, okay, now I should probably be panicking. So, <laughs> so I was. I grabbed my tripod. I said, onto the, onto the floor of the cave. So I, I ended up crawling across the floor of the cave for a while. So I figured that. I finally put more air in my dry suit, lifted myself off the ground, forced myself out of the cave, uh, out of that, the first tank. Not on my, the back of my head. I mean, it felt, it, when it happened, it felt like somebody hit me in the back of the head with a hammer. And I was looking around for the knot you know, where this thing had hit me and I couldn't find it. And I had some other weird symptoms, like my ears. And I was afraid to tell anybody, actually, because... I was sound blasted by a seal underwater, and it almost knocked me out and killed me under the ice. A, a thousand meters. They bring these fish up, they always have and they chomp down at, uh, you know, mollify the fish, and the fish comes up, it's docile, it dies.
calls are, have been measured at 193 decibels. And we talked to a physiologist. Back to a loud sound that actually talked in that he explained by uh, this seal having come come up behind me and barked at me in its loudest voice. in the world. They're, they're I mean, they can think of, you know, uh, the use of, of ATP, the use of oxygen, uh, how it deals with, with lactic acid on these 90-minute diets. Uh, uh, all of this physiology that, that, that they've done lactic by what else feels. And, and so, Probably because nobody was dumb enough to be down diving solo in an ice cave. Uh, uh, about the only thing they know is from uh, Cassandra being pumped. Yeah, 
I guess for me, it's like a broader uh, experience from being down there studying these amazing invertebrates. But we did always, always really appreciate that, and we wouldn't ever kill more than obviously we needed for the study. But I still feel terrible about the four cute fish that I killed. <laughs> but um, but I'll never forget when we brought all these fish up and. Um, and those are in um, fluid sacs next to the brain. We would like dissect them to see what they were eating. We would measure the length and all these different things. And for anyone who. no red blood cells, which is this amazing adaptation that some Antarctic fish have because there's so much oxygen in the Southern Ocean that um, a lot of times they can actually absorb the oxygen through their skin and in other ways, so they don't actually need red blood cells. Um, in the case of the toothfish, one of the most amazing things they do Or carbon. So this, this issue of climate change, we know that um, the Ross Sea and, and the Southern Ocean as a whole is a big carbon sink for it. It's the, the Antarctic and the Ross To have a human interaction, have human fisheries, and that's not necessarily the case in other parts of the world's oceans, but there, there just never was um, historically a human impact in this way. And the other thing that it strikes there's indigenous rights there. 
it's all of our responsibility to, to safeguard this area. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want, yeah, I want to be on all of that stuff in a second because um, it's really important. I just want to ask kind of, um, well, a couple of questions about the kind of field work side of things. And John, I've got a couple of questions about you guys a question I asked about oh. Being out in the field in the Antarctic, and I suppose more specifically, are there any mistakes or things that went wrong that you guys experienced that taught you important lessons? Um, perhaps for things that you're doing. Yeah. Uh, you want to hear the story of my first dive? <laughs> <laughs> if it's as good as the, uh, the last story, then yeah. All right. Yeah. Hopefully, it'll be shorter. Well, in any case. body suit uh, uh, that goes under your dry suit and keeps you warm. Uh, that was the only piece of equipment I hadn't tried. It's super thick sleep. It's about a half inch thick and it covers your whole body. So, Anyway, I got it, but I tested everything else, and I thought I was ready. Head of Antarctic diving, and, and uh, we went down to about 80 feet, and I was feeling great. Everything was working great, and we're starting to look at the benthic community and creatures on the. This is the checkout. And I, you know, so I fiddled her, pulled her valve to release some air, you know, uh, and it, nothing was helping, and I was starting to rise faster and faster. I could not figure it out. I eventually just had to flare out my arms and legs, a wrap like a balloon. Ribbing from everybody uh, about this terrible first dive, and then they told me the secret. They're like, "Oh, well, you didn't put duct tape on your shoulder because clog the exhaust valve, and then." Preparation. I. 
legendary photographer for the, and filmmaker from the, I'll bet you do, yeah, from the BBC in Scotland. He's this, he's this wee Scottish man who, who has the biggest heart and the, and the, uh, the strongest will of anybody I've ever met. Anyway, he was... Again, your hands are cold, but you had to do it. doing, um, the science is also doing a lot of, uh, media on the side. With it here. However, like John said, it actually is really hard to like get a proper grip on stuff. And so when I was with the gloves on, I was I felt like my hands were getting dangerously cold. And I actually have um, from. Francisco, which is a, uh, uh, it's, it was basically a teaching museum, 
and a real woman named Mary Miller. Mary. Media training and media equipment specific experiences. And so Mary had invited both of us to Cassandra uh, at the Exploratorium, but I already knew who she was through her work in Teachfish. And so uh, you know, she's a drop-dead beautiful woman, and the best I could summon for a pickup line was, hey, uh, we got to go talk to Like the food cheapest for my masters, and um, and I had gotten married. That and also dabbling in media, and so I had seen a lot of John's photos. Um, and so when he did approach me and say we need to talk about cheapest, um, I was very open to that idea. Right? He could try Started with David Engel after our first meeting in, in 2004, and uh, uh, then the Young from Australia. I had been well, sorry, uh, yeah, Peter Young from New Zealand. I had been basically looking for a videographer. But at that point, I didn't do any filmmaking, and I knew that the project needed a film, so. I approached Peter uh, Young in 2005 to, to join our ranks. Pushing project, pushing it forward uh, from there. And then in 2009, <coughs> in 2009, Cassandra joined up and New Zealand, close by 4,000 kilometers away, um, but New Zealand is the closest port for for the fishery, and so New Zealand was the one leading that charge, and so that was the reason for, okay, if we're going to have a documentary film, it has to be based out in New Zealand so that we can reach that audience. And the aim of 
for you guys? Is it to raise public awareness or to, to bring the story to decision makers? Or what, what were you guys And it, it changed. The target changed over time. First, it was New Zealand, uh, who at the time were, were, were resisting. It really was a rock theme type area. That's right. That's what that's what our, that's what we were calling it in the rock theme. And and to do that, we we knew we need. Around the world, we estimate that the uh, ultimate visibility of the project was over 100 million people um, uh, throughout the world in, in all the different countries, uh, the Tamalar countries that, that control the, the marine resources in the Ross Sea. Uh, so, so that was the public part of it. Uh, in the political realm, we started to collaborate with different organizations. Science as well. So, David and I. I just to go about defending a proposal for the for a rock theme marine protected area, and out of that uh, conference that we threw, funded and threw in uh, Baltimore, and, and multiple nations to take part in this collaboration. Uh, out of that came uh, the paper that ended up being the backbone of the scientific defense of the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area. And then, uh, you know, David Angley and, and his uh, close collaborators followed that with just a flood of different papers looking at the ecosystem from all different angles uh, climate change, the effects of the fishery, uh, on and on and on, finally ending in, in, in an analysis of, of policy. Called out the Camelot organization uh, and, and how they were they were uh, going about their business. So so it was a you know, policymakers. Eventually, we were able to uh, get the ear of John Kerry. Ended up being the biggest proponent of the Rocky Marine Protected Area at, at a high level, and he. Uh, collaboration with China and Russia at the end. Uh, so the, and the, the NGOs. 
it's under a really interesting set of motives. But most of the people that I speak to on this podcast are either kind of writers or artists or you know, practical conservationists. Whereas you, throughout throughout the last C campaign, have transitioned from and incorporated this incredible set of skills across science, across media and communications, and then you've also correct me if I'm wrong, but your PhD and become an expert in the politics and the policy yeah. of the Ross Sea Marine protected area. What, what's that journey been like for you? What's been the benefit of being able to move in and out of all of those different areas to the campaign and to you as well? Yeah, so I really, really um, sort of wandered between science, communications, and most recently policy. What am I really good at that can drive change in these ways? Um, and the amazing thing is that, yeah, now now having worked in all those realms, I can really draw on all of them. And, and the value of that is incredible in that I feel like, for one, I can talk to diverse audiences, which is super helpful. But um, Proposals being presented by governments in underlying this place, I could really see like where the lines drawn away, drawn in a way that actually say, and that was something that I was able to, as John mentioned, um, shine a light on in ways that perhaps people who were only trained in policy wouldn't have had a nuanced understanding of that. And so for me, it's like this amazing toolbox I have now in terms of I can, I can understand science. I can still, I still do. deeply into understanding the policy and international relations now. And that's been an amazing journey. And for us, like we had worked on this last ocean project for years and we did keep trying, we kept trying to understand how do you target the right audience? How do you make media that actually reaches the right population? And we didn't we didn't always know what that was. And through doing my PhD, I was able to get inside the room where those decisions were made. John mentioned this Ocean, and we were able to see how the decisions were made and to actually see what countries were blocking and why were they blocking. And you, you can't understand that unless you actually get into the room. I'll let John answer after I mentioned that. So, so the national governments are the ones that are actually involved in negotiating. And um, the years I went, and John went a few years too, we sat on an observer delegation to the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition. So they're, they're an environmental um, umbrella organization that is allowed observer status. They're the only environmental 
for me is that you're not allowed to um, really like uh, uh, you don't engage in negotiations. And so the role you play sitting in the back of the room observing um, is for me it was studying it um, for. And that is that John actually came to the meeting and did give a talk. He um, gave a copy of his book to every national delegation, which was super powerful. And then we've also um, a very powerful year where John was able to actually come in and talk. And talk. But I'll also let you mention. Yeah, and I, you know, I think um, they're, uh, you know, working with these other organizations, they've organized. Uh, uh, demonstrations outside the building. This is a stone fortress in the middle of Hobart, Tasmania, where these negotiations take place. There was, in 2016, there was a group of school children that came out, uh, organized by, they brought in uh, this class of, I think, four they had each had a flag of the different countries and they gave their picture to the And it's really hard to, to identify a specific tipping, tipping point. Uh, it, I think it's better to understand it in that we brought pressure from all sides. Uh, on the process and and show them that the world was watching at one point. Paying attention to what you're doing down there, speaking to Camelot and to the Camelot members. That was a really important piece that we were able to, to contribute. The, um, over and over again, I told the story so many times to my parents, my friends, my friends of friends, and onward through the, the network that we built, just telling it over and over and over again and bringing more and more people on board. That was, that's what the project was, and that's, that's what we did in uh, collaborating with
really affected me and really struck me quite zoomed out and placed them within the wider landscape. And then the second thing was I noticed this. Projects. He did a lot of um, using stills in quick succession to create a kind of video montage effect, which I thought was also really effective for kind of creating a sense of movement and placing the placing the wildlife in the landscape as well. Jeez, I'm, glad, I'm glad that wasn't drawing for you. <laughs> you know, oh, that's really great. Yeah, no, you know the the the, the idea of these creatures. You know, they're, they're, the creatures that live in the rock sea are balanced on the very precipice of possibility. You know, they're, they're, they have the most extreme adaptations. They have the most extreme adaptations. They're, they're living in the most extreme environment, uh, and and so the, they and the environment are one. You know, and that's, and that's the way I think about it. Uh, and I'm glad that came through in, the, in, in your interpretation of the photography because. Oh, that, that was my attempt, which is to connect all these. That was a very conscious goal. Developed out of necessity because, I, like I said, I didn't have any filmmaking experience before. I'd never made a film. But I wanted to tell this story in a filmic way. I had my own set of images, and so I started creating these, uh, these kind of staccato sequences to. To approximate film, and then I kind of started to like it, and and, and really got into it. So I'm glad that I'm glad you appreciate it. Yeah, and um, you know, I we I, it's awesome for me too to hear the uh, effect the images had on you. And we know that like. would not have happened without his imagery and without this sort of um, idea of this place as the last ocean, that the imagery and the sort of um, branding, if you will, of this place really has such an impact. Being a lens into this such a remote place that most people will never get to go to and getting them to really care about it. So the, the images were amazing in that way in terms of bringing the wildlife and that place to life. So.
mentioned, I mean, the last ocean starting in 2004 and having all these scientists working for so long on this issue, an, an actual proposal for a marine protected area in the Rossi didn't actually come before negotiation until 2012, um, really officially before all the, the decision makers. And then it was this long, multi-year process. And there were lots of turning points where... Um, where, you know, I'd be in the room and you could see that more countries were, were sort of joining in consensus. Um, Camar makes all decisions on consensus because you need all countries to um, work by voting. It's not as if every country raises their hand in support. The way consensus works is that nobody blocks, if you will, no position. And so what you would see over the years is that in 2004, voting in unison with Russia um, after the Khmer invasion. Uh, so that was an amazing gift to see that like global politics was very much at play. And then in 2015, um, China actually joined in consensus. And as John alluded to, um, our understanding is that that had a lot to do with direct, um, actually presidential level discussions. So John Kerry was leading it, but it was actually discussions between um, President Obama and the second president. That scientific pressure, the pressure from the public. There was so much pressure. Like, you know, there'd be moments where it seemed like negotiations progress, and during those times, often, they would kick everybody out of the room, and they would have what's called a heads of delegation meeting, where it's literally just the top diplomat um, that's negotiating on behalf of each country is in a room together, and they're having private negotiations. And those times are really difficult because you're basically We, we actually, we had this, like, whole family affair um, at Camelot this uh, last, the 2016, so not last fall, the fall before. 
And so, you know, basically, uh, the two weeks of negotiation. And I remember Russia was still, and then they had a head to delegation meeting. They kicked everyone out of the room. We all come back in, and and then Russia said we support the Rusty MCA. And then another country said, well, actually, we still have a question about duration. And so, and I remember the room being like, we're there. Oh no, we're not there. And another head to delegation meeting, and finally Thursday night, and John and I will never forget this. It was one of the most profound moments of our life. We're all back in the room, and, and the chair of the meeting said, that's it, we have consensus. And the room exploded in applause. Countries were hugging other countries. John and I this for so many years, and I think that's what John is alluding to in terms of the, the incredible diplomacy that happened here around the Rossi, where you had all these countries that, that had tensions in other parts of the world that were actually joining together. And as a as an example of how proud everybody was of it, the uh, Camlar, the office, they actually printed a huge map of the adopted Ross DMPA and invited all those individuals in the room to come up and sign that map. And, and they did. Like, from all these different countries, people came up and signed that map. There was... know that you're there until you have consensus from everybody and and this makes this actually makes the policy very exciting and very stressful at times. very much is a peace treaty. It bans nuclear activity in Antarctica, still to this day. It bans military activity. Um, and later amendments actually even provided environmental protection for, um, for the entire area. So it really is a common ground and incredible work in Antarctica. And I think that's absolutely, absolutely spot on. And I think that it becomes all the more important when we're looking at a, a, a world so that it goes throughout Europe uh, and as well, and you know to see this type of global collaboration. Maybe I'll with the best. 
feel, uh, you know, hung up my cleats and, and headed for something else. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, after all that, all that work and all those people involved in, but, but to see it happen, just, it was out of the Cold War. I mean, we were faced with the worst of ourselves. Of what we can be as, as humanity. And, and to see that play out in front of us, I mean, I'm literally choking. And it's so powerful. So, maybe we can do it again. <laughs> I hope we can. I mean, I just looked at Cassandra, and and uh, she was the most beautiful creature I've ever seen in that moment. Like, it was just the most amazing thing to be there to witness that with, with my wife having, you know, both of us having been involved so deeply in this thing, uh, and and to see it come come to fruition was, was just the most, you know, it's just the most powerful thing. And, and like like Cassandra said, I mean, they were literally making hugging other nations in the world. It, it was, it was watching a peace treaty and it just made come out whole of this, this terrible, whole, of these terrible trenches we've dug for ourselves in our resources, in our, in our Tending towards violence, that we can we can move past that, and and so all of that was going through my head. Plus, just this basic relief that I was able to to actually write my final. <laughs> Even articulate the amount of all nighters. Had had a photography. Peter Young, who made the documentary, finished uh, the film, and we all made these incredible personal sacrifices, this wasn't just a job for us, or for me it wasn't also just, you know, um, a job and then a PhD, it was something that we personally put so much energy into, so it was just was such an inspiring moment to know that if you work hard enough, um, with this big community of people working so hard. dissertation three weeks later, and it was a much better story <laughs> to be able to say this happened rather than, oh, I studied the barriers and it still hasn't happened. And it was 
it was really wonderful to, you know, to, to be there at the meeting and have people share with us the stories of how it happened and, um, and, and you know, to be part of this huge celebration. Um, area proposed in the East Antarctic and with LC and in there. As far as I know, it's still the world's largest marine protected area. I think so. I think uh, in the running. But in any case, and it particularly around international spaces to I believe as far as multinational What does make this so special is that it was this global collaboration of, of nations coming together to do this. And really, shortcomings of this, of this negotiation. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the uh, uh, there are still some. There's a way to go with the raw seeds. You can't just you can't just pack this up and um, put it on the shelf. And the, the the MPA. Slope. It's kind of a, a, a kind of a peninsula of the continental shelf. It goes out into the deep ocean. It's extremely important for all types of species. That was left out of the MPA against the wishes of, of the scientific community. And uh, uh, because it is the, the heart of the fishery, uh, there there are some management issues with the fishery, and, and there's a lot that has to be solved. Uh, and there's there's a uh, the scientists that we the battle isn't over. We we, we had a we, it, it was an amazing amazing experience, but there's still work to be done. Yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, Slightly insensitive question, but one of the things that I read was that this marine protected area has a kind of sunset clause. It has a it has an end date of 35 years' time. To what extent do you think um, you or maybe other people need to take on you know take on the torch? Need to start thinking already about securing a renewal of that marine protected area in 35 35 years' time from now. We're already thinking about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I you know when that. When the idea of a sunset clause came, incredibly disappointing um, because we're talking about animals that live 
talk about the MPA expiring in 35 years is troubling. Um, however, my understanding is that often in law of all sorts, but particularly international law, the big adopted any really any sort of new rule or regulation that it's easier to keep it in. will be understood by them, that we actually can use it to do research and monitoring, to understand the ecosystem, and, and to use it as, as a real conservation tool. My ultimate hope is that in 35 years, we would That's the hope. But, but you're right, it is, for now, it's, it's written to expire unless all the countries agree for it to continue. And, I, you know, I think... Uh, uh, that when when that was proposed, everybody in the in the conservation community thought, "Oh my gosh, that's the kiss of death." I mean, they'll, they'll give us thirty, you know, they'll give us thirty years until the price, and uh, even more through the roof than it is now, and then they'll just go in and, and shell <laughs> the raw uh, but. Having seen the pride in that room, we accomplished, and and there, it, that was across the board. So I I feel like there's a real good base to build on that pride that that these countries felt in having seen this really conservation. Agenda and, and, and conservation measures to, to to protect this area, uh, and so I think that, that that's the base, and, and now we just have to build on that. And of course, uh, we have to understand how the MPA and and its utility. <coughs> so we have to start studying it and studying it from the perspective of this is a marine protected area. How is it changing the function of the ecosystem? How is it augmenting the function of the ecosystem? And uh, uh, and that has to start right away. And that's that's the next battle is getting a research and monitoring plan in place, multinational, to to study this thing, reinforce the ownership of it, and uh, and move forward. And that that uh, research and monitoring plan got held up in the 2017 meeting uh, last October. And uh, in 2018, and that needs to be put in place. You know, I think uh, it's a, it was a great, great, great first step. I've just got a couple of questions left. Um, one of them, maybe it's a little bit complicated to answer, but Cassandra, I see you write um, in articles. Uh, but one of the main questions or one of the main things to come out of the negotiations was how did the U.S. and Russia find common ground in the Southern Ocean when it's been so difficult for them to do so in other parts of the world? And it's something lost.
that was created where we had all the all the stuff we talked things that, that happened in 2016, and one is that Russia was there was this real opportunity for them to demonstrate leadership, um, being the chair of the Promotion on that it's, it's our 200th anniversary. Um, so again, this opportunity to demonstrate leadership in Antarctica rather than around Russia blocking, Russia blocking, and this was this opportunity to to be a leader. And there also was, um, I guess, President Putin declared 2017 to be the year of ecology in Russia. And uh, while people weren't totally sure what that meant, we know that it meant that. There was going to be more of a focus on, on ecological leadership, and there also was a new ecological minister, um, which allowed for another person to engage in high-level negotiations. So all those things were happening, which I think allowed a bit of a, a turn, and, and some people... for Russia and U.S. to, to restore some diplomatic that, that wasn't like a huge political cost if, if Russia agreed to the NCA. It actually was a pretty small political cost and a huge diplomatic win um, at, at agreeing in that way. So I think all those things were at play. And, and what we've also seen, too, is historically, if, if a country is isolated, if they're sort of the last country standing, um, that often they will come to consensus as well. So this was an opportunity to, like, you know, stop being the blocker and also demonstrate leadership and, uh, and to build some diplomatic relations with the U.S. So. Despite this shortcoming, which we've, which we've discussed, <laughs> what, briefly, what is We're looking at, uh, we, we talked a little bit about this, but, but Antarctica is changing so fast with climate change. Of their life, 
you know, this, this is uh, Antar- the Antarctic. The Antarctic is changing so fast. It's, uh, I mean, Of evolution, anyway. So, so removing excess human pressure from uh, the area is critical. Uh, like, like we said, we haven't done it perfectly, but but uh, we've taken a big step forward in giving this place the buffer it needs to have a, a fighting, adapting to a, a, a changing climate where where we're seeing such. You know what we what we desperately need in the world uh, right now are, is a pathway to sustainable fishing because you know, there, there are two billion people on Earth that depend on on fisheries for their for their primary source of protein, and all of those people are at risk.
90% of our fisheries, and we have 2 billion people depending on those fisheries. So we need to understand how to create a fishery. And the raw sea now, uh, instead of Over, overfished fisheries. Uh, you know, all of the time is fishing for a deep water fish that's poorly understood, that matures late, that, that uh, uh, where the, the bulk of the breed is. Monitor that fishery and, and and bring it to a state of sustainability. And if we can achieve that, that would echo throughout our our utilization. Okay, that was. That was my last question, um, and that was a pretty good note to end on. But is there anything that I haven't asked about, or anything you wanted to say that that we haven't covered? Um, well, I just want to say, if I can, the amount of energy you have is amazing. It's clear to the lucidity of her answers that is one of the great minds that work on this issue and it's been an honor to work with on this issue. Clear through the lucidity of both of your answers, how incredible your role in all of this speaking to both of you this, well, this evening for me, this Not four hours, though. So thank you so much. No, our thank you, Matt. It's our pleasure to tell the story together. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. It's been really great. Thank you, guys. Um, before before we hang up, I want to ask the same question. My partner in crime, uh, Sean Heinrich, who, who is one of the stars of uh, the, the film Racing Extinction, um, he and I have worked on. Actually, we could have a second in Sean, but, but uh, we've worked on, on marine protection in uh, Indonesia, and we actually have. Uh, I'll send you some links. But I'd love to do that because I spent a year living in Indonesia. Oh, oh where? That was uh, in central Kalimantan, which was very much jungle and marine focused, but that would be.
raised awareness, and, and that ended up in being a, uh, a driver of the new marine protected area in Raja Ampat. Uh, John has, has been a warrior uh, for a similar amount of time. His, his story starts with a seeing uh, a pink shark in Indonesia, and uh, I'll talk to him and, and tell him, uh, tell him to, 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 respond. to respond, yeah. Fantastic. That'd be great. And send me through some blurb about you both. Yeah. Um, and then, then I'll get this. Then I suppose you've got an audio file as well, which you want yep. to Dropbox to me, or maybe you can just attach it? Uh, I think it's going to be a Dropbox. We'll see how long it is. Two hours, probably. Dropbox. Yeah, it's probably a couple hundred. Yeah, it's couple hundred it's my email address. So much again. That was absolutely amazing. Oh, Super fun. Thank you. Man, thank you for being so, so well prepared and, and have, having been so read up on this stuff. Podcasting craft seriously in terms of prepping the questions and doing the research, and you know, trying to kind of um, appreciate people's time in, in as many ways and as much as I can, because you know, I'm really grateful when, when people give up their time, particularly you guys today when you've you know, you've got childcare going on and you've taken a couple of hours out, well, more than two hours out for me, so I'm really I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. And you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org, on Twitter at wildvoicesproj, or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much, and until next time.